Hello and welcome to the Theology Meets Reality podcast, the podcast for people who seek to follow Christ in the midst of the messiness of life and parenting. We are Lisa and Greg Casimir, and we are not afraid to deviate from the norm of culture, even Christian culture, to make sure that we are applying what we believe about God to how we live. Welcome to episode 14. We are in part two of a three-part series on how we got the Bible. We learned last episode about the original manuscripts of the Bible and the reliability of them and the copies of Scripture. Today, we're going to talk about how the books of the Bible, the canon, were established. Is our Bible complete? How were the books chosen? Why do some Bibles have different books? Lisa will lead us through these questions as she shares about what she learned in seminary. Hi, Greg. Hi, Lisa. Welcome to the next episode of it's, this special three-part series. It's exciting. I'm glad to be recording with you. No one else I'd rather record <laughs> with. It'd be a little awkward. Anyway. <laughs> um, we were talking beforehand about um, that we were, you were saying that you were enjoying this topic. Yes, I, I very much enjoy... Um, like sharing this information and hearing it all over again about how these books were chosen, uh, the the validity of them, um, you know, uh, how much we can trust God's word is God's word, and like that it's right. consistent and true, um, and, and it's all it's it's extremely helpful for yes. Christians to know. Yes, it's exciting. I've taught this as a class a couple of times. And so I've gotten like, it's fun to see people's reactions because it is really encouraging and um, kind of helps build you up. And then we, we often come across Christians who just either don't, they don't have a lot of confidence in the way that the Bible was put together, or they just don't know, like maybe they believe it, but they have no idea how it actually happened. So it's yeah. a cool topic. Well, I know for me, like I didn't learn like any of that until you went to seminary. So, I mean, in our, in my life, it took a seminarian for me to learn that. So I would imagine it's probably pretty similar for a lot of other people that yeah, it takes someone probably. who's been taught about it to come into their lives, to share about it. There you go. That's where we get to share it. Um, yeah. So we're excited to share it with you today. Um, and we're going to begin with a quote, like one of our quote of the podcast from my commonplace book, my personal quote book. Yeah. So here's the quote for today. Good theology is not primarily about being right. It is about being good. And this quote is from Mandy Smith, who's the author of the book, Unfettered, subtitled, Imagining a Childlike Faith Beyond the Baggage of Western Culture. Do you want to talk about the quote first or the book first? <laughs> Because I can't just say nothing about the book. Um, Should we talk about the quote? Let's let's talk about that subtitle first, because I think it kind of probably informs the quote. Um, right? Yeah, it does a bit. It does a bit. So, um, this is a book that I recommend. It's at minimum very thought provoking, um, but I found it more helpful than that. Um, like personally, resonated resonated with me on several areas, but. So Mandy Smith is trying to help us 
get past some of our blind spots in Western culture where we connect faith and culture without recognizing that we're doing so. Um, and one of the, one of the ways is ignoring Jesus, um, call for us to be like a child, right? Like childlike in our faith to come to him as children. And of course, like the whole idea of God having us call him father also implies that we have some sort of childlike tendency that we should have. And that goes completely against the self-sufficiency, the individualism that is, you know, important to our culture. Yeah, the drive to to grow up, be an adult, be successful, that type of Western mentality. Well, yeah, it's not like it's not that God calls us to not be successful. She does a really good job of kind of like flushing that out. Like, obviously, we're not supposed to be childlike in that we're not responsible and we don't have jobs and stuff like that. But um, so, how do we be childlike in our faith, even as an adult? Mm. Um, yeah, and there's a lot. There's a lot there in the book. Um, Usually when I'm reading a book, I put like book darts in it when I, there's like a quote that I really like, and then I'll come back and copy those quotes down. Like not all of them make it into my commonplace, but a lot of them do. And this one, there were so many huge quotes. I ended up like taking pictures of the half pages of my book because there was so much content instead of writing the whole thing down yeah and if i just put it on the bookshelf i wouldn't come back to it but if it's like on my phone then i will come back and think about it a little bit more anyway there's a lot there that's very thought-provoking and it was interesting we were talking in church recently in um in a small group of christians about you know they were describing themselves as self-sufficient and stuff like that and i just thought it was so interesting in relation to this book so that's a big um, plug for the book. Yeah, and it, it's also a bit of context on the baggage of Western culture from the subtitle. I'm trying to think what's the word when you don't get paid for it. Unsponsored. Yeah, this is a, I was going to say intern. Unsponsored uh, plug for the book. So the quote again is, good theology is not primarily about being right, it is about being good. And I highlighted that because I feel like not not everybody that I'm hearing in like the news or the bigger world, not necessarily in person, but nah, I'm not sure they all believe that. Right. They're, I'm sure there are people who are absolutely focused on being right uh, over someone else, like and you know i'm right you're wrong and therefore i win right kind of the, kind of mentality right which might not be exactly the whole point of this whole thing you know christianity and god's kingdom yeah no i think it's to love one another right uh, we do need good theology trust me like i'm very particular about theology and believe strongly in orthodoxy and i believe words really matter and it's what we what we believe about God affects what we believe about everything else. So it's really, really important what we believe that we do have good theology, but that's not the end in itself. Right. And it, it is also possible, I suppose, to be technically correct mm-hmm. with your theology, but you've lost the spirit, mm-hmm. the Holy Spirit of the the of the text of the yeah. of the theology. And so the you you've strayed from what 
God intended. Yeah. Yeah. And we've talked before, not to get too much off on this topic, but it's, it's really interesting and foundational, but um, we've talked before about when we're sharing the gospel with other people, are we so focused on truth that it is no longer beautiful? Is it no longer good and beautiful? Are we so concerned about making sure everybody understands the facts correctly that we are um, shadowing or putting some sort of, I don't know, cloud over like the beauty and goodness of God? Maybe, but that also, <laughs> I mean, that that's probably unintentionally, but it's, um, right, it, yeah. it goes right, well, the and the, the metaphor that you use it, like Jesus tells his disciples, like no one like lights a candle and puts it under a basket. Like mm-hmm. you put it up for all to see so that it may illuminate like the way. And so similarly, like the beauty of the truth, like really it will do the work. Right. Um, no one's ever been like argued into believing, I don't think. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't say no one, oh. but I, I understand what you're saying. Um, yeah, so that's, our that's quote a lot to podcast. think of. It. That's our quote. So we're going to move on to the canon because it's also super interesting and that's the topic of our episode. So the kind of theme during those three episodes when we're talking about where did scripture come from, where did the Bible we have come from, the whole overarching theme is that God's inspiration and preservation of scripture over time. So God planned and knew what he intended to be included in our Bible from the beginning. And so now we just look back on it in amazement at how God did it, which is really amazing considering the amount of time and the number of authors in all different places and the languages and that God did this. And of course the continuity throughout scripture it's amazing. And so we get to look back and go, oh, look, look at this plan that you had. So last time we talked about the original manuscripts. If you haven't listened to that, that's a good one to listen to. And then this week we're going to talk about, well, how do they choose the books of the Bible? How do we have the the 66 books that we have today? So um, it's called the Canon, is the collection of the 66 books that are in our Bible. That's the combination of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the word Canon um, it describes these books that are recognized as inspired by God. So a canon can also mean like a straight rod or a bar or a measuring rule or ruler or a rule or standard for testing straightness. So the canon of scripture is the series or list, the collection of books that we call scripture, the Bible. So that's what we call our complete Bible, the canon. So the canon is not something that was created in a room of church leaders years after Christ's death. It was developed organically with God's guidance over time since the beginning of the Old Testament. I think that's what some people have like a picture of just like these men sitting in a room in early church history kind of going, what about this? Is this gospel Thomas thing any good? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It was like, yeah. I, Genesis is important, right? Should we put that in? Like, that's like not at all how it happens. Do you think that's how people perceive it sometimes? Yeah. That, well, first of all, the, now that I'm actually thinking about it, like that's all kind of ridiculous that, you know, there's a room full of men. They've all got like original manuscripts that they're just comparing, you know, and they're like, eh, I don't know. I mean, do we need Isaiah? 
you know. Yeah, that would be a little like rocky, questionable. Like, <laughs> it'd be that's yeah, no. very presumptuous of those men to be anyway. Yes, that is not how the canon developed. We have to think way back to the beginning of the Old Testament to understand how it was developing over time. So the very first collection of written words of God was the Ten Commandments, right? Yeah. It's beginning. And then, of course, Moses wrote additional words to go beside the Ark of the Covenant, likely the Book of Deuteronomy is what we think was probably written next. And then we know that Moses wrote the first four books of the Old Testament as well, which finishes out the Pentateuch, right? So you've got the first, first four books, then Deuteronomy is the Pentateuch, which means the first five books of the Bible. That's how we got those. Also, sometimes are those is the Pentateuch also referred to as the Torah? Yep, same thing. Okay. Okay. Good question. <laughs> so then we know Joshua added to the canon after Moses' death. Joshua says that in Joshua twenty-four. And then, so we've got all the way through Deuteronomy, Joshua, and then Old Testament books additionally were added over time. And many of them are explained in the books themselves, which is cool and very much like God to ex- like a lot of the Bible is actually explained in the Bible. Um, so first Samuel 10, 25, first Chronicles 29, 29, second Chronicles 32, 32, Jeremiah 30, verse two. If you're like the type of person who needs to look these up yourself, you can go to those verses and it will explain, um, the books themselves. So got those it is likely that the old testament books were all finished being written around 435 bc so we do know that the new testament books were did not begin to be written until christ died so we've got from about 435 to jesus death around 30 bc or sorry 30 a.d approximately so there's this like 400 year gap where there are no canon canonical books so, and this is very much attested to, um, it seems like the Old Testament canon was accepted around the time of its completion. So people were waiting during this 400 year time. And I'm so glad, like, I didn't live during that time. I feel like that would have been a really hard time to live. But anyway, it's like... <laughs> that you had all these texts that were pointing to a coming Messiah and it's like, okay, is it now? You hear nothing now? from God for 400 years. Oh, that's right. There's absolutely nothing. There's no prophets. There's nothing. They lived. They lived with God, like and a you know some kind of prophet or king, uh, like the whole time. Wow. Yeah. So people were waiting for an official word from God, and though the books were written, um, though there were books written during that time, the people at that time did not hold them to the same authority of the Old Testament books. So, like First Maccabees is one of the example of a book that was written in that period that we do not consider to be canonical. And it was written about 100 BC. And in First Maccabees, it says, so they tore down the altar and they stored up the stones in a convenient place on the Temple Hill until there should come a prophet to tell them what to do with them. That's the end of the quote. So they didn't have an authoritative prophet, like one of the Old Testament prophets, to speak God's word to them at that time. So that's what Maccabees is attesting to. There was a distress quote, such has not been seen since the time that the prophets ceased to appear among them. So even though Maccabees is not a book that we consider canonical, which means it doesn't have authority, that doesn't mean that we should we can't learn from it as a historical book. 
Mm-hmm. So I don't know if people are like, well, you're citing it, but it's not scripture. I'm using it to... It's a reference. Yeah, to reference history, exactly. Very good. So then Josephus, Josephus was a Jewish historian who's very well known. He wrote about something similar. He says, from Artaxerxes to our own times, a complete history has been written but it's been not been deemed worthy of equal credit with the earlier records because of the failure of the exact succession of the prophets. So Josephus didn't think that there were any words that God added to scripture after Malachi. So and Josephus lived around the time of Jesus. So this is just more Testament to like this completed old Testament scriptures. And then this period of waiting, long period of waiting. Gotcha. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah. So like, you know, the, the writings that occurred after Malachi, they were not, they were not like, uh, words spoken by a prophet. They weren't like the Holy spirit coming upon someone to yeah. write down a, a message for Israel. God mm-hmm. was silent during this 400 a year. What is it? Um, Inter or something. I'm blanking on the word. I had it earlier. Intertestamental yes. period. Yeah. Yes, thank yep. you. Yep, between the testaments. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. And then we also see the same thing in like rabbinic literature. Um, they say, after the latter prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi died, the Holy Spirit departed from Israel. So we have a lot of um, historical sources to kind of um, cement this idea that the Old Testament was written and then there was this waiting period of 400 years. And it also like, kind of speaks highly of how seriously Israel took this. Right. They didn't, they weren't falling for anyone saying things during this period of time. Uh, they were probably, they were likely testing it against the, the scriptures that they had. And they were like, no, you're not lining up with what God has previously told us. Therefore, like we're not, yeah, I don't know if there were people like, you know, out there writing false, false gospels kind of thing, like, you know, false scriptures. I mean, like the two books of Maccabees are just historical books and that's like what they were intended to be. And right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I know what you're saying though. Um, and we talked last week about like the Jewish people had an extremely high regard for God's word and mm-hmm. were more careful with it than like generally than we are, than probably that we understand, right? Like yeah. Oh, yeah. Just yeah. culturally. If you haven't listened to the previous podcast, highly recommend. Yes. And then, of course, it's always important important to consider Jesus. And he never, as far as we know, never seemed to disagree with the Jews regarding the canon. Like, we don't have any record of him, you know, arguing, well, why are you citing this book that's not canonical, right? Right. Okay. And, of course, Jesus spread from many like we know he there's records that he read from and quoted from many old testament books so yeah like those for sure those books for sure um are easy to know that they're part of the canon but anyway so we've got got the old testament and then let's talk about for oh yes oh yeah so i'm going to give you some new testament evidence for the canonicity of the old testament so there should be this continuity continuity through scripture and then when we're reading scripture we can use scripture to understand scripture um right yeah yeah so there are old testament quotations in the new there are some 250 quotes from the old testament in the books of the new testament 
None are from the Apocrypha. So, uh, the Apocrypha is a group of books that are um, non-canonical books. Maccabees are part of that. They're like the books that um, are in like Catholic Bibles. Um, oh, those. Or anything like outside of scripture. There are no quotes from that. Um, all the Old Testament books are quoted except for Esther, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. So every other book is quoted in the New Testament, which gives you lots of support for it. And then, of course, the Old Testament quotes by Jesus. There's a lot of those. In Matthew 5, verses 17, 18, the Lord declared that the law and the prophets, which is a reference that includes all the Old Testament, and then he summarized as the law in verse 18 would be fulfilled. And so it declared it declared the law and the prophets. So that's the whole Old Testament as God's authoritative word. So, I mean, that's what Jesus thought it was. So we mm. can agree with him. And yeah, he would know. Right. It is his word. Right. So that's pretty good um, support. Okay. So let's go to the New Testament. So the Old Testament tan- canon was closed and the Jews waited about 400 years for a word from God. And Malachi ends with the promise of a coming prophet who will point the way. And that's in chapter three, verse one. And we know who that prophet is. John, John the, Baptist. the Baptist. He finally came. And uh, what a word they received. John 1 says that word was Christ, right? Mm-hmm. Pretty cool. Okay. So thus begins the formation of the New Testament books and the canon. So early Christians began to recognize that the teachings of Jesus had authority and that the words and works of Jesus formed the first elements of the New Testament. So the books of the New Testament were in use as they were written as the new Christian churches developed and grew. This is really cool to kind of understand. Um, There were like songs and hymns that people regularly said, like quotations people regularly said, and then these would like make their way. And this is such a short period of time too. They would make their way into the books that would become the New Testament. Um, And like we think, like it's like in that first hundred years, like less than the first hundred years after Jesus' death, probably the, the first 70 years after Jesus' death, like the books were written. So there, the people who knew Jesus, I'm kind of and I'm getting slightly left off mm-hmm. topic, but people who knew Jesus were still there. So the, yeah, the, the authenticity of these books is like really, really good. Right. They were the, the, the apostles who walked with him. Even, yeah. Even the, like, outside of the apostles just the 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 non-apostles who were referred to were still alive right and you know they could validate the things that the apostles were saying that was being written down right um right so during this time there was a canon developing it was organically and it was unofficially but there was no need to like make a list you know what I mean? To put down these books of the Bible into a list until there were Christian fringe groups who started to write their own document and then suggest that they had authority. That's really the key of the canon is that we believe it has authority over us. So while there are lots of books that are helpful to read and might be useful and might be true, they don't have authority over us. That's the difference. And by the end of the second century, some of the books that were disputed included Second Peter, Second and Third John, James, and Jude. Um, Jude was disputed because he wasn't an apostle, but he was accepted because of his connection with James and he was Jesus' brother. 
Revelation was uh, disputed because it has a lot of difficult content. There was a book called Shepherd of Hermas, which teaches the development of the Trinity over time. The Epistle of Barnabas, the Apostle, Apocalypse of Peter, the Didache, and then Hebrews, which had a question because they weren't sure who the author was. And then First and Second Clement. So these are kind of like, if there are any books that were they were not sure about, those were the books. I have not heard of several of these. Well. Because it doesn't matter, I suppose. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, for sure. Like some of them don't have authority. Right. So when the church went to officially recognize the books in the canon, there was a ton of agreement and little disagreement, which is important. In the Old Testament, 34 of the 39 books were like completely agreed upon. In the New Testament, 22 of the 27 books were accepted by all. So that's pretty good. Um, yeah, pretty like good ratio. to have no disputes yeah, <laughs> over those. It's really good. So you probably want to know the books that were disputed by some people. And those were song of songs, Ecclesiastes and Esther. You can probably guess like why those three, because I kind of talked about it before other than the fact that, well, song of songs has some like content that might be interesting people. And, but song <laughs> of songs, Ecclesiastes yeah. and Esther all were not quoted by Jesus. Esther never mentions the name of God, which some people didn't like. And then we've got Ezekiel, Proverbs, James, Second Peter, Second and Third John, and Jude. So, but there was a criteria. It wasn't like just well, whoever I don't know, whoever's the loudest gets to have their book in the Old Testament. They had criteria for recognizing inspired books. So they needed to be connected with an apostle. It's called apostolicity. So, because the apostles were closest to Christ, so like Luke had Paul, even though Luke wasn't. Um, a direct apostle, and then Mark had Peter. That's how Mark and Luke got in there. Yeah. Um, and then this also prevented really late date books from being added too far after the time of Christ. And this is really cool because the New Testament, like I said, was all written like really, really early. They all needed to be orthodox to Christ's teaching. Very important. Yes. They needed to be centered on Christ. They claimed to be inspired. And then they needed to have an internal witness of the spirit to the reader because the Holy Spirit is the one that writes these books. And then they needed to have the authority of the church and then the witness of the Holy Spirit in the church. So one thing that's really important to consider is that religious councils at that time, um, they didn't have power to cause books to be inspired they were just recognizing books that God already inspired. Does that make sense? That the, let me see if I understand. So those religious councils, they could do nothing to inspire books to be written. Right. They were just through discussion and prayer, Mm -hmm. determining uh, if the text that they were reading um, were inspired by God, which exactly. goes back to the, uh, what was it, the the internal witness of the spirit to the reader? So the text itself um, kind of speaks to you that it right. is from the Holy Spirit. Right. So they had all those criteria for the canon and the councils were um, going through theirs to recognize the ones that God had inspired. And of course, God is leading and guiding this like he does 
Hall of History. In 393 AD, the canon of scripture that we have today was officially confirmed at the Council of Hippo. So that's when your list of the books that we have today was set and done in 393. I mean, that's that's pretty good. That's two, three generations removed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, two or three generations. Well, two well, or three... Generations. <laughs> Greg has generations in quotes. No, you're right. Like two or three hundred years removed but that doesn't mean like just to like emphasize again that doesn't mean they came up with the books at that time or they put them together at that time like they were already there they were already together they were already being read and accepted and like had authority it's just they were like okay let's make this official just right. so that nothing else gets added that shouldn't be added and so people aren't confused right yeah i what well, mm-hmm. I, I i highlight the relative closeness to you know, the life of the apostles that, you know, they were, Jesus died uh, around 30 AD. And then the apostles, some, you know, they still had much of their lives ahead of them. So you're looking at like, you know, two, 300 years post most of them, but it's still not that far removed from originals from Mm -hmm. people. You know, you, you, we have the Jewish, we have the Old Testament that was uh, an oral tradition for a very long time. And then the New Testament scriptures were being written down, but there was still surely like a bit of an oral uh, check on it. That mm-hmm. like people who lived it told it to other people in addition to writing it for sure. And so there was still... Uh, you know, that kind of assurance through the Holy Spirit as well, of course, but that these are the real scriptures. Like this isn't like a, a bad copy mm-hmm. or whatever. They, they they maintained the authenticity of what they had. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not like they, they put the canon together in like the 1400s or something. Like it, it yeah. was very close chronologically. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good point. So I told you, you wouldn't, we weren't going to look up any scripture, but can you look up... <laughs> Revelation 22, it's at the, you know, you can find it it's at the end of Revelation. Uh, verses 18 through 19, while I'll talk about it. So the canon is closed now. It was, you know, officially closed like 393. So that means we're not adding any New Testament. We're not adding any books at all to the canon. We shouldn't take any out. And Revelation is going to explain that. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. The Called you last. Verse 17 is quite long and it jumped to the next page. Okay. Revelation 22, 18 and 19. And I solemnly declare to everyone who hears the prophetic words of this book, if anyone adds anything to what is written here, God will add to that person the plagues described in this book. And if anyone removes any of the book, any of the words of this prophetic book, book, God will remove that person's share in the tree of life and in the holy city that are described in this book. Okay, so that's pretty clear. It's pretty serious, yes. <laughs> so the canon's close. So let's so I I would say I would say this in my class and then ask this question, which would make me laugh. Okay. So the canon's closed, we're not adding any new books because it's all everything that's authoritative has been put in the can and we're all done. 
So, in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul references that he's written the Corinthians before. If we find that letter, do we put it in the canon? <laughs> and I've had people no. say yes. And, and I get that I get the urge to do it, but it's just important to consider like just because Paul wrote it or another scripture writer, just because they wrote something doesn't mean it was inspired. So and it doesn't and it also doesn't mean that it, it's edifying for anyone else to read like obviously even the those churches themselves like that received the letters didn't think it important to keep because we don't have it <laughs> maybe they kept it somewhere very safe that we haven't found yet yeah maybe like Careful. the dead sea scrolls mm-hmm. so but just so everything an apostle wrote was not inspired but even those dead sea scrolls like they just affirmed what we already had yeah, I know, but I'm saying they were well hidden. Yeah, okay. Like they were intentionally I, hidden. Okay. Because they were. Um, so it's not the writer that inspired things. I mean, Paul was a wonderful person, but like it was the Holy Spirit that inspired him to write the books that he's written in the canon, right? Like right. First and Second Corinthians, for example. Um, so not necessarily everything that he wrote and not necessarily anything, everything that, you know, Luke wrote or whatever is inspired We've got our whole canon, which is amazing. And God has planned this for a long, long time. So questions that like people like to call out if there's any sort of controversy, a couple main questions that we're going to talk about are, well, what about the Apocrypha? How come we don't have those books? And, but the Catholic Bible has that. And then we're going to talk about what about these crazy books that like we hear about on the news? I feel like we don't hear about them on the news anymore, but maybe I'm not paying enough attention. We don't listen to a lot of news. Yeah, so. we also don't like <laughs> pay attention to like that news or something. Like, yeah, maybe it's maybe it's on like History Channel. They're like, actually, it probably it is. Pro- yeah, if there's anything <laughs> weird that you, is or there's out there, probably it's other channels we don't on know the about. Quote unquote history channel. Well, yeah, it used to be about history. Now it's a little weird. I don't know. Well, honestly, we haven't watched History Channel in a really long time. But in seminary, I did like a whole report like. Uh, that was like rebutting like this whole documentary on the history channel. Yeah. Wasn't it the history channel? I probably. It's been a while. Yeah. Okay. So. They just trying to, they're, I mean, their goal is advertising dollars. So they froth people up to get them to watch their shows so they can put advertising in their eyeballs. Right. Which is not just the history channel, but like yeah. almost everybody. TV. Yeah. So there are no strong objections or reason to doubt books that are in our canon, nor are there any good reasons to consider adding books. That's my summary. But we will talk about books outside the canon. Yeah. But just, you know, you can rest mm-hmm. in that. Like you mm-hmm. can have the assurance that the canon is complete. The canon is good. It is trustworthy. And it is, um, you know good for teaching and reproof reproving and all that stuff that paul says that i that's right don't have memorized and i should that's right okay so real quick we'll cover the apocrypha and those are the books that the roman catholic and eastern orthodox church affirm as canonical that we don't have in our bible um there are seven of them they were given full canonical status at the Council of Trent in 1548. So it wasn't until then that they were like officially, uh, this is my understanding, that they were officially 
considered books that were authoritative. And then it, there was a pronouncement of anathema to anyone who rejects them. So you can't, you're not supposed to be Catholic and reject them. Anathema you, being? You're kicked out of the Catholic Church. They just love doing that. <laughs> well, I mean, to their credit, um, like you need to have lines in the sand. <laughs> sure, sure. But so if you don't agree, it's like it's like their biggest and only gun. No, if the oh, in purgatory. So, um, if you believe that these books are canonical, like we would do the same thing in our church. If people were like, "I don't really think that the, this these books have authority," we'd be like, "You're not really in orthodoxy with our church, so I'm not really sure what you're doing here." Do you know what I mean? Okay. Like if you look at it from that perspective. Yeah. Okay. So. It's already okay. I'm not going to allow any <laughs> no Catholic hate on this podcast. Okay. So the books are Tobit, Judith, Wisdom, Sirach, Baruch, and First and Second Maccabees, which we already talked about. All of those were written between 200 BC and AD 100. And some of the early church fathers did accept the Apocrypha as part of scripture. And then some of them used them for devotional or teaching purposes, but didn't see them as part of scripture. Um, so why are they not canonical? Well, there's no Jewish list of Old Testament books to contain them. So these are all, just so you know, they're all, well, since I said they were all written between 200 BC and AD 100. So they're all during that period of where we didn't hear from God kind of thing. Does yeah. that make sense? So they would all be in the Old Testament. In a Catholic Bible, they're all in the Old Testament. Interesting. So, um but there's no Jewish list of Old Testament books that has them in there. And then even though Christ and the New Testament quoted liberally from the Old Testament, they never cited a book that we don't have included. So they never cited one of those. You're giving yeah. me a look. Well, Does that make sense? Yeah, I'm just, uh, well, it makes sense to me. I'm just like, Christ and the New Testament quoted liberally from the Old Testament and they never cited anything from the Apocrypha. Yep. Just or, to make sure we're understanding it, this, that, yes, you know, it, all the pronouns are following. Yes. They never cited from the apocry any of the apocrypha books. Correct. Okay. So, and then next, in the first four centuries, all the lists of the canonical books, with a few minor exceptions, exclude these. So, for the first four centuries. Next, the contents of some of these books speak against their canonicity. So... There are some doctrines that are not what we agree with or the rest of scripture agrees with. And so like, for example, in Tobit 12, nine, it says almsgiving saves from death and purges away every sin. Um, and then prayers and offerings for the dead are taught in second Maccabees. They also contain some folklore and myth. And lastly, they make no claim to inspiration. In fact, like we've talked about first Maccabees nine references the absence of prophets in Israel. So they themselves like kind of prove out that they're not aligning with the Old and New Testament. Yeah, they don't meet those standards for canonical books. And honestly, there's not really a big reason to put them in. Um, I've read a lot of these books. I, I don't I don't think that they're canonical. I think if you're curious, read them. They're easy to access. Like you could easily find them online or you could buy a Catholic Bible but it won't hurt you to read them, but um, they're also not among the more widely used books by Catholics. So we're not really missing out. Like, 
I mean, I don't like know. They're in there, but they don't ever like use them in the service. Not very often. I mean, it, it's rare that those books are used. Um, I think Maccabees, the first and second book of Maccabees are probably the most useful just because they're about the Maccabean war, which is really interesting about the Jewish people. And it's like historically very interesting. Yeah. Um, but that's still, they're not canonical. Does that make sense? Okay. All right, so then we're going to go with some of the, I guess, more like popular, cultural, weirder gospels. Um, like, I remember the Gospel of Thomas was like a big thing a while ago. People were like, oh, the Gospel of Thomas. Never heard of it. Really? Yeah. I don't know. That was a thing. It was like, when was this? I don't know. I mean, we were kind of living different. You and I were different. <laughs> living different. Uh, on different paths in life. Yeah. Like listening to different news and stuff like that when we were younger and growing up. Uh, okay. So the Gospel of Thomas, some people think, oh, well, this is like a, this is a book we should pay attention to. And this is uh, supposedly like the Doubting Thomas or whatever. Is that the Thomas that it re- would refer to? Who knows? Yeah, I'm not even really sure. It reflects Gnosticism. Gnosticism was a heresy that the church rejected. So it like, obviously it's not canonical just because it's Gnostic and Gnostic is a heresy that the church rejected. Um, and then also it was unused in the church for centuries, which violates the idea that a work is canonical because it would have wide circulation in the community of faith that embraced its teachings. And then also like, I feel like people should just read this stuff. Also, like if you have a problem with the script, if a problem with the Bible, like read the Bible first. If you feel like the Gospel of Thomas is great, like I hope you've read it because like know what you're speaking about, right? So there's a quote, for example, that's from the Gospel of Thomas. It says, Simon Peter said to them, let Mary go away from us for women are not worthy of life. And Jesus said, lo, I shall lead her so that I may make her a male so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every woman who makes herself a male will enter the kingdom of heaven. So, I mean, that just, that's just, dumb on its face like it like this is obviously not of god because he made them male and female like he wouldn't have exactly so i think if you're somebody who is sincerely interested in trying to make sure that scripture is canonical and has continuity and is inspired by god that if you read a book like this you would very quickly throw it out i don't know i would hope it's, I think it's either people who are just trying to stir up controversy aren't Christians or like people who kind of get, you know, send money to like the, <laughs> to all the fake email schemes and stuff like yeah, that where yeah. it's like, well, I mean, <laughs> people who are, who what's are the word for that? Yes. Gullible. Yeah. Susceptible. Yeah. But I mean, now that we have the internet, like you can read this stuff. Like, don't read the article about it if you really care. I mean, you don't have to care because it's Gospel of Thomas, so you don't need to read it. But, like, if you are like, oh, I really think the Gospel of Thomas is true, go ahead and read it. Yeah. Okay. But make sure before you go spending your time reading non-canonical books. That's a really good point. Make sure you've actually read the Bible. That's a really good point, Greg. There's many plans, like, uh, that you can, they're readily available on, Mm -hmm. uh, the internet you can go to like bible.org or bible.net there are one year plans 90 day plans you know 
to get you through the Bible. Uh, some are, some have study guides with them. Some are just like straight up this verse to this verse. Have at it every single day. Um, there are actual versions of the Bible that are 365 Bibles. Mm-hmm. Be sure that you have read God's word in its entirety before you go wasting your time on anything that's not God's word. I love that. That's perfect application is to, especially like reading the whole canon altogether. I did a 90 day read through one time and that was like a really cool way to read the Bible because it was a short enough time span that you really did get to see like the overarching themes. You didn't have time to get caught up in the details. Yeah. Yeah. You don't get, you don't get, um, way down in the minutia of mm-hmm. doing a in-depth study. You get the, you get the broad stroke of God's plan and purpose and, then and he brings it to fruition. It's amazing how it all fits together and like intertwines and how it speaks to us. And I mean, the Bible speaks for itself in a lot of ways. So it's very yeah. cool. Um, so, oh yeah, I was going to say one final tiny thing is that since um, connection to an apostle was a requirement for inclusion in the canon, in the canon, it makes sense that people would attribute their gospel to an apostle to gain readership. Also be right. wary of that. Just like slap a name on there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So just be wary of that. And take Greg's advice because that's awesome advice. A great application and end to our uh, podcast today. Thank you for listening. Yes. Take us out, Greg. May the strength of God sustain us. May the power of God preserve us. May the hands of God protect us. May the way of God direct us. May the love of God go with us this day and forever. Thanks for listening. We appreciate all of our listeners and are praying for you. If you'll take two minutes to rate and review our brand new podcast, we would be so grateful. For more information on today's episode, head to theologymeetsreality.com. And until next time, follow Christ, not culture.